Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good evening. How are you? Good? Well? You've been enjoying Ephesians? Thanks, just in case I cry. I don't need that. So we're, uh, we've been at this for a couple of months now, two, three months. I'm not even counting anymore, but um, we're kind of nearly towards the end of this study of Ephesians, um, and we're kind of smack in the middle of the kind of pointy end, if you like, the application part of, of what we've been studying, and we're going to jump into that in just a moment. Um, thanks, team. Oh, they've gone. <laughs> Thank you. How could that new song? Um, just as... Uh, as the, the reflection, um, the reading that we had, the story of Lazarus, uh, Jesus raising Lazarus, um, I remember some time ago writing a, a kind of a, a short story just around that idea. I thought I wasn't going to tell a story. I'm not going to tell it. it was just, I was just thinking about it as I warm up. Um, but can you, just, can you just picture being there when that happened? Like we just kind of read it and it's just a few, a chapter, you know, a few short verses. But just the intensity of, being present when Jesus called someone out of the grave. He'd been there three days. He was dead. And there's all these people there mourning and there's wailing. And he just says, and I think he shouted it, and I reckon it just would have echoed through the hills. Lazarus, come out. And out he came. Oh, it's all goosebumpy. That's, that's the Jesus who we serve. That's, that's the nature of God. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like on earth, bringing life where there's not life um, and restoration where there's, uh, where there's death. And we're going to look at a, a little bit about that because that's kind of, in one sense, kind of what we're talking about tonight, what it's like to, um, to live in and under that power as followers of Jesus. So as I said in the past few weeks, we've been kind of really drilling down in this second part of Ephesians into what Paul has to say about what it means to live the Christian life. Um, and just by way of a, of a recap, in case you're uh, new and um, or maybe haven't been for a while and have kind of lost where we're up to, you, you'll remember perhaps that we've been saying that Ephesians is broken roughly into two halves. And in the first half, chapters one to three, we see Paul describing the church as a body. And that's kind of the language that he uses. Uh, the key theme of the first three chapters being that the unity of the church comes through union with Jesus Christ. And as, as members of that body, that family of God, uh, we have been made into a new family. So both Jew and Gentile have now been brought together. It's not one added to the other, so to speak, but it's a new thing, a new family under Christ. That's, and that's revolutionary in and of itself. But that's kind of where what, what Paul... That's how he starts this letter, he is reminding us that we belong to Jesus, we belong to God's family, we are one, a new thing. And then he goes on in the second half of Ephesians, chapter 4 to 6, um, and he begins, Paul begins to outline how we are to live as members of that new family. And that's kind of where we've been in the last few weeks, chapters 4 and, and 5 and now into 6 today. Paul implores us to see ourselves in the light of what it means to have a new nature in Christ. I grew up in a church and in a tradition, a theological tradition, and I don't know whether it was 
actually said or whether it's just the way I heard it by my but I'm, I'm imagining that this is what is implied that when you become a Christian yes you're saved but you have this old nature which you must constantly beat to death in, in order that one day you might be good enough that's not what it says you're dead in Christ you're raised to new life and we've been reading in Ephesians we have a new nature created by God because it's in his image. I'm kind of paraphrasing it there. It's new. You don't have to do anything with it because it's shiny and bright and sparkling. But yes, because we're human, we still need to resist tarnishing it. We don't work for it. It's already ours. We work at keeping it shiny, so to speak. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we already have all, and we talked about that earlier on in, the, in a few months ago. We already have all that we need in Christ to live the Christian life. And that's what Paul's encouraging his readers in, in Ephesus and, and, of course, us as well to think about. He wants us to imitate Jesus. That's kind of a key word in Ephesians, imitation, to mimic, to imitate Christ in every aspect of our life. Just as he imitates his father, we imitate him. Um, and, and really that's where we're going again tonight because that's the theme Paul does all of this because he wants us to understand that when we live this way, we're actually living out an incarnational theology. Do you know what that means? It's this idea that not only does God dwell in us, but that he makes his presence known to the world through us. If you want to put it this way, <laughs> I'm going to do this a lot tonight because I just, I want to, it's just so, becoming so clear, this book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are about what God has given us and what we have in him. The second three chapters are about what God does through us as we live in him. It's a beautiful picture. And that's what Paul's talking about. And of course, this is not new. This was God's plan all along. And we're going to look at that again tonight as well. Let me put it in simple terms because that helps me to get my head around it. Paul's encouraging us to live our lives in such a way that we make an imprint on the world around us. That we make an imprint, a gospel imprint. And one of the things I find really interesting about Ephesians, and in particular what Paul is saying and doing in Ephesians, is the way in which Paul um, encourages us to go about doing that. To make an impact, an impression on the world in which we live. There are kind of two things that we can look at when we study Ephesians. There's the things that we can, we can do, and we're certainly going to be looking at those things, and we have been looking at those things. But if you read at another level, you also see that Paul's telling us how to do it. And I really want to focus on that tonight, because it's not maybe what you think. Paul calls us in Ephesians to be countercultural Christians. I like that phrase. That's kind of a bit catchy, really, I suppose. Countercultural Christians. And he does so, especially in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, by focusing on, uh, I guess at first glance, is something which is a little unusual, but he does it by focusing on the family unit or the household unit. And he, and he kind of frames his teaching and all that he has to say in and, and through that. And again, that's what we're going to be focusing on tonight. Paul calls us to be countercultural. 
He did it firstly by addressing the wife-husband relationship and he talked about how in that relationship is to be one of uh, mutual respect, uh, one of love and submission towards one another um, because it is actually a reflection of Christ's love for the church. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we looked at uh, the, kind of like the second set of this uh, teaching where Paul talks about the, the child-father or the child-parent relationship uh, where we learnt that children are to be raised in love, are brought up, it says, in the training and instruction of the Lord and in return they are to respect and honour their parents. And again, it's a reflection of the relationship that we have with our father. And as we've been saying, a number of us now who have been teaching through this, this passage, that one of the things that we need to remember when we come to a letter like Ephesians is that we have to remember that for those who are hearing these words for the first time, this is actually really quite radical, what Paul is saying here. Quite radical. It's a, it's a shift in thinking. You see, household codes, and this is what this is, there were these codes, these uh, uh, controls, if you like, these factors which determined how things were ordered and how they happened, uh, how the marriage relationship and the running of the house was codified. It was set out. Everyone lived that way. The way parents and children interacted was, was codified. It was set out and everyone kind of lived that way. It was the way it was, was done. Um, the relationship, as we're going to look tonight, between slaves and masters was set out. It was, there was an order to it and there were these codes, these household codes, which everyone followed Everyone in the Greco-Roman world lived more or less by these codes, these household codes. They were the foundation of a stable society. So when Paul speaks into those, he's upsetting the apple cart because they're set. They've been followed for centuries. You don't mess with the codes. And Paul's going, actually, I've got a word for you. It's about the codes. <laughs> Because this is how you are to live as followers of Jesus. And he picks those three, which of course uh, revolve around the household or the family unit, if you like. And of course, we've talked about this, the, the husband-wife relationship, the extended family, the children. But also in a household, there were, there were free servants and, and slaves um, and, and all sorts of people belonged to a household. And what the head of the household believed, everyone believed. And what the head of the household said, everyone did. And so to mess with the codes was a radical shift in thinking. This is just my opening summary, by the way. Um, and the underpinning principle of all of this can be found in Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the underpinning principle of all of this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, before we move in today's, into today's section in Ephesians, I want to take a moment to talk about what Paul is actually doing here when he teaches what he's teaching. And again, an understanding of the context is really important. Last week in the um, AM service, Brett spoke about the cultural and the literary context. Do you remember that, those that were here? Um, there's a cultural context and a literary context. And the cultural context that Paul is speaking into is one of established and well-defined power structures. That's where these codes fit in. They're well-defined. And the goal of these well-defined power structures are to ensure that in society there'd be stability. Because if there's stability in the household, then there's going to be order in the village. Makes sense, doesn't it? 
order. If there's order in the village and in the city and in the community, uh, then there's going to be, relatively speaking, uh, an assemblance of peace. (laughs) That makes sense, doesn't it? Lots of cultures work this way. If we have stability in the household, there's order in the community which leads to peace, which of course ultimately brings blessing. And for many cultures that means pleasing the gods and the gods will bless you if you live according to these rules and these standards um, and so on. But in Ephesians, the context is a little different because we have to view all of this in the light of Roman rule and in particular, something called Pax Romana. You heard Dave speak about that this morning. I want to elaborate a little bit on that. You see, Pax Romana, which is a Latin word which literally means Roman peace, was a long period of time with minimal uh, military expansion which went from about 27 BC to 180 AD. So so relatively speaking, it it was a peaceful time in the history of the Roman Empire. And during that 200 year period, the whole land, the whole area around the Mediterranean, so up through what is now you know, Italy and Rome and, and Spain, right across uh, down uh, through the Mediterranean, what is now the Middle East and across the north of Africa, that was all under Roman control um, and it was all, uh, relatively speaking, uh, at peace for 200 years. Of course, that's a very subjective term depending on which side of the team you're on. <laughs> but everyone was under Roman law. What fascinates me about this period of history, and and Dave alluded to this this morning, you have to understand that the Roman Empire, I'm not a huge history expert, but but from my reading and my understanding, the Roman Empire was the most successful, most powerful, most long-reigning empire to control really what was most of the known world. They did a pretty good job of it, relatively speaking, again, depending on which team you're on. But you know what fascinates me about this point in history? That it's during this 200-year reign of peace that God steps in with the Messiah. That's significant. Never before, not even really today, although maybe with the uh, onslaught of global communications, but never before in the history of the world and not for the last 2,000 years has the, has the known world been so connected under one system. And into that, God inserts the Messiah, the chosen one. I find that fascinating. At a time when the leading global superpower is forcing peace on the whole known world, God sends the Prince of Peace not to overthrow the authority of Rome, but to supersede it and ultimately disarm it. God knows what he's doing. He knew what he was doing. It was the perfect time in history to do what he did. And even though he could have achieved that, and I don't think I'm over-imagining this, God could have achieved that by sending the heavenly hosts, the hosts or the armies of heaven. 10,000 angels could have come and decimated the Roman Empire just so easily. But that's not what God did. Do you know who God sent? 
to decimate the Roman Empire? The church. You and me. Think about it. God who spoke and the whole universe came into existence could have just said, away, Roman Empire. But that's not what he did. He sent the church as a demonstration of his power and his authority. That's you and me. We're the heritage of that. Ooh, it's kind of goosebumpy, isn't it? People like you and me, here's the catch, living as children of light in dark places. Dave spoke about that um, last week in the PM service and he introduced to us this idea of a cruciform life. Do you remember that, that phrase? I've, never, I've heard it before but I hadn't really thought about it for a long time and as he was speaking I thought oh, I, I kind of remember thinking about that and I spent a lot of time this week thinking about that idea of what it means to live a cruciform life. As the name suggests a cruciform life is cross-shaped because that's what a crucifix is. It's not rocket science is it? But literally, this is what it means. It's a life shaped by the cross into the shape of the cross. The cross, of course, representing the life, death and resurrection life of Jesus. The cross being the soul-shaping thing which defines what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A cruciform life. So quite literally, a disciple of Jesus means that your life takes on the shape of the cross. Let me explain what I mean. There's the vertical, where we love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. That's our worship. And there's the horizontal, where we love our neighbour as ourself. That's our act of service. That's the cruciform life. A life shaped by the cross to look like the cross. Worship of God, love of others. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Paul is teaching. But it's more than that. Because a cruciform life is actually a way of doing life in the place where God has planted you, wherever that is. It's not a program that offers tips and techniques and 10 steps to success. And nor is it something that you just do on a Sunday or a Friday night. The cruciform life is a day-in, day-out lifestyle shaped by the cross, shaped by Christ, marked by our love for God and our love for others. I've called this message uh, a gospel-inspired life. Because I think that's probably a phrase in my mind that kind of captures what it is that a cruciform life is and what it is that Paul's calling us to do. And we're going to jump into that right now. A gospel-inspired life is a life that flourishes and becomes more and more transformed into the likeness of Christ, living as sons and daughters of God as a part of his family, loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and giving ourselves to others in acts of service and love that demonstrate the arrival of God's kingdom here on earth. That's what it means to live 
a gospel-inspired life. And it's exactly the kind of life that Paul is calling his readers in Ephesus, and of course us, to live. One of the things that I found really interesting as I've been reading kind of through and studying this letter to the church in Ephesus is to discover, as I said, how Paul goes about kind of teaching us to do what he's calling us to do. Because interestingly, there's nothing overly subversive about what he says. It's not really kind of out there in a wild way, although it is in one sense. You see, Paul's not inciting a cultural revolution here. There's no call to rise up and protest against power and authority. There's no proactive agenda to dismantle established systems or institutions of culture. None of that. See, what Paul is suggesting is much more subtle. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Shockingly simple and yet so very powerful. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a call to allow the gospel to infiltrate and penetrate into the very building blocks of society, the household. The household. This is a radical teaching because from the household it permeates out through society, bringing stability order, peace, and ultimately, God's blessing. In many ways, it really is a masterpiece of how to build a movement. For what purpose, Paul tells us in chapter 3, let me read it to you. This is God, he says it, it's right there, this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, And both enjoy the promise of blessing because they belong to Christ Jesus. God's purpose in all this was to use the church, that's us, to display the wisdom of its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Praise the Lord for that, eh? You're right, I'm going to need these. Think about it. God is revealing his plan of restoration of all humanity through us, his church, his family, his spiritual household. Again, this is not new to the story of God. From the very beginning, it was his intention that his people, a people called by his name and set apart by his glory, for his glory, would be a blessing to the nations. It's always been his plan. First through the Jews and then through the Gentiles and obviously us together as one new family. So why Paul's call to a radical countercultural way of life is not overly subversive, it is effective. Because change is always most effective and long-lasting when it comes from the inside and works its way out. It's always the case. And in my mind, this kind of helps us to understand what Paul's about to say. So we're getting there slowly. 
This helps us to understand what Paul is about to say in this next section of Ephesians. And we're going to read it together. As with the section section on the wife-husband relationship and the section on the child-father relationship, this next section of scripture uh, does not sit in isolation in this letter. It's a part of a bigger thing. But let's read tonight's passage, Ephesians 6 and verses 5 to 9. uh, And I think I'm in the NLT here. Um, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember what the Lord, Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favourites. Just think about that passage for a moment because I'm going to ask someone, I'm very game when I do this because I really don't know what you're going to say. Excuse me. I'm going to ask someone what's the first thing that pops into their mind when they think about this passage and if you're wrong I'll just tell you what the answer is. What's the first thing that pops into your mind when you read this passage about slaves and masters? Anyone? This is really risky and I'll say it out loud so everyone can hear it. The abolished slave trade? Perfect. We didn't even tee that up. Why does Paul support slavery might be the question you're asking when you read this passage. Because he obviously does. Because he's talking about it in a positive way. Have you ever wondered that? You'd be in good company because for centuries and centuries, this is one of the go-to passages ashamedly that the church has used to justify slavery along with one in the Old Testament and we don't have the time to go there and I'll actually get really angry if we do because it's just a total misuse of scripture which has which has led to genocide but don't don't you wonder why does it seem that Paul supports slavery here well to put it simply I'll answer that for you. I'm not going to leave you hanging. It's not actually his intention because it's not actually what he's talking about. That's that's the very simple version. His intention in this passage is to show us that in every aspect of the common household structures that existed, that treating each other with love and respect, regardless of position, is how God's children should live. Why? Why? Because the gospel-inspired life is a reflection of God's heart for all humanity. Now, obviously, we don't have the time tonight, or even if we had like a whole week of lectures, to go through and explore the complex ethics around the practice of slavery. So I'm going to sum them up for you in just one short phrase, what the Bible has to say about slavery. Are you ready? It's wrong. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Good night. It's wrong. It's unjust and it does not reflect the original design for humanity. That all people are created in the image of God and are created equal under God. Forgive me if I'm mistaken, but all people means all people. 
And if you step back and look at the meta-narrative or the, or, the, or the arc of Scripture, the, the whole arc, you will find that God is not pro-slavery at all. Even though it happened, it's not his design. It's the result of sin. And he's not for it. And neither is Paul, actually. Although at first reading, you might think, well, he's supporting it because he's telling slaves how they should live. But you have to remember that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how people who are followers of Jesus should live in the circumstances that they find themselves in, whether they're right or wrong. Does that make sense? He's addressing the reality. I like him. The other thing to consider is that Paul actually knows, because he's quite a smart cookie, that he's not actually able to change the order of things by condemning the ruling authorities. It's not really in his power to do that or to change their practices. You see, the Roman emperor would not and will not, or the Roman Empire would not and will not be defeated or overthrown through radical social activism. Because they had a really good solution for radical social activism. It was called the cross. If you rebelled against anything to do with Roman law, you were put to death. Probably on a cross, because that was seen as treason to the emperor. So political activism wasn't going to change the emperor's mind on whether slavery was in or out. And Paul knew it. He wasn't even, this sounds a little crass, but he wasn't going to waste his time trying because he knew it wasn't possible. That's why we don't see Paul overtly condemning slavery. One author summed up Paul's position this way. God's method for dislodging sin's grip on the world was not by condemning it. Instead, he shouldered it bearing it on himself at the cross. It is irrational for the church to demand that people who don't recognise King Jesus to behave as if they did. It's easy to shame leaders for their their evil choices, but that won't change the world. We need to spend our finite resources in calling people to recognise the one who can change the world. So does that mean we should stop advocating for the rights of people who are marginalised, suppressed and pushed to the side? No, absolutely not. If there's something the church should be doing, it's that. And more and more, I think, in today's society. But we do have to recognise that unless change starts with us, in our attitudes and in what's in our heart and with our convictions and the way we live them out, then ultimately nothing's going to change at all. Because remember, change that is effective and long-lasting comes from within and flows out. When our lives are inspired by the truth and the reality of the gospel, that's when we begin to truly live as God intended for us to live as his people, making an impact in the world in which we live. So what does that look like for today? Because in reality, the type of slave-master structure that Paul is speaking into doesn't exist today, really, not in our Western culture especially. It does exist in some forms in some other, some other cultures, for sure, absolutely. It's also important to note, I think, and to be fair to the context, that Paul is not talking about the systematic enslavement of whole people groups here, or even people minority groups like we saw in the 17th, 18th and 19th century in the the States and other places. That's not the type of slavery that Paul's addressing here. 
that form of slavery, of slavery is abhorrent. And as followers of Jesus, we should, have, we, should, we should be working tirelessly to do whatever we can to not support or endorse that. And I'm not going to get into a you know, political activist role here, but as Christians, I think we really need to think carefully about the choices we make when we consume about whether or not we're supporting or endorsing that type of slavery. Because when you put your money where your mouth is, that makes a difference. Because it's a consumer-driven world. Is that, is that okay? Paul's not talking about that type of slavery, though. So instead of condemning slavery, Paul seeks to transform the unjust relationships that, uh, that existed, and he calls on both sides to submit to one another in mutual submission. As servants of Jesus Christ, remember the context. Paul is talking to Christian Households, those who are followers of Jesus. And just summing it up, slaves, work as if you were serving Jesus with your ma- as your master. Masters, transform the way you treat your slaves in light of how your master treats you because he doesn't see them as any less than you. All are equal under God. So do you see what Paul is doing here? Not, not necessarily what he's teaching, that makes sense I think, but the way he's doing it. Do you, do you, are you beginning to see that? He's advocating for real transformation in society. Not by condemning the injustice of slavery, but by urging people to treat each other as Jesus treated them. To model Christ-likeness in every aspect of their lives, in the places where they lived, so that their lives would be a reflection of Jesus to a world that was watching That's what living a gospel-inspired life looks like. And that's what Paul is getting at. So what does all this mean for us today? Not yet, Andrew. How do we take a passage like this one and apply the principles that Paul is talking about to our own experience? You know, I had a whole nother page and a half on this. And then Pastor Ben came this morning and stole it all. Much better than I could have. And I know we often say this, if you get the chance, listen to the podcast. I'm urging you, if, not if you get the chance, make the chance. Make the opportunity to listen to that message this morning that hopefully it's up or will be up in the next couple of days. A brilliant piece of teaching on this passage. Brilliant. So I am unashamedly going to steal his five points because it'll be much quicker than my page and a half, which I actually went home this afternoon and scrapped and re-edited. Why, in, why, why do all the hard work when someone's done it for you, I think? So thanks, uh, Pastor Andrew. Uh, uh, ben, sorry, Ben Ewan from uh, Sun Life Church. Was he from, Dave? Yeah, great teaching, great great teacher. So he applied these principles that we find in this passage in the context of our relationship with those who are in authority, in authority over us. And that was kind of the, the context that we looked at this passage in. Um, and the examples that he gave were uh, perhaps in the life of a church, that, that the context would be that in, in, a, in a church setting, there, might, there would be a pastor and perhaps elders over us who have been given by God authority to serve as our leaders. 
And so they would be the ones who have authority over us. It might be that you work for an organisation or you're involved in some type of organisation where there's an appointed leader and they've been given or granted authority to, to have leadership over you in that kind of realm or that role. And, and obviously there's also the world of work. So either, either you are uh, an employee in this room tonight or hoping to be um, or you're an employer Uh, Maybe you have your own business or you're in a managerial position or you're an executive or something like that. But either way, you're going to fit into one of these two categories and possibly even both. And so... um so, so, so pastor Ben applied these, these principles to that working relationship as well. And basically, this is how we outline Paul's instructions. And I'm just going to go through them really quickly because they're brilliant, but really, listen to his message. So there are five points. The first four were addressed to those who were uh, under leadership or under authority. And this is what Paul is saying to those who find themselves in the slave category, if you want to use that word, because that's what it says. Uh, firstly was that we should serve honourably when we're serving, that we are to honour those who are over us and show them respect for the, in their position. That's the, that's the first point, serve honourably. The second was, one was that we should serve, and you can have a look at this in the passage that we've just read, it's all there, that we should serve sincerely, that we should work with integrity, not just when we're being watched. We have this thing at the company where I work, and I can't remember the actual technical name for it, but they do these like these audits where a trainer comes and watches you work, but you know they're coming, so you do everything proper. But they also have this thing where he comes like really sneaky and hides in the bushes and watches you when you don't know he's there. And it's, got a, it's got a name and I don't recall it. It's, it's some type of obs- a special type of observation. I call it like reality check. <laughs> How do you work when no one's watching? Because actually that's your integrity. Integrity is, what, is, is when what's on the inside is also on the outside, especially when no one's looking. That's, that's how I remember it. So are we serving sincerely? Fourth one was um, that we must serve wholeheartedly, that we must give 100% in all we do as if we were doing the will of God. And the point that Pastor Ben made was a really good one, was that it might actually be that the job that you're in is God's will for you. So when you're working, you are doing the will of God because it's his will that you're there. Does that make sense? Please help me to remember that tomorrow when I go to work. I've got to get in that truck and drive in stupid Monday morning traffic. It's the will of God. I'm going to do it with joy. This is, this is reality. The fourth one was that we must serve enthusiastically. I, I, and, I like, and I'm guilty of this. This is, this is the one that I, would, I struggle with. You can ask my wife. She'll just say yes. She's already saying yes, and I haven't even said it. Have an attitude of joy. And I love the way Pastor Ben kind of explained this. Again, just stealing his sermon. I don't, I don't mind. It's, it was a great word. It's God's word anyway. Grumpy Christians are not fun to be around and they're not really a good representation of the kingdom of God. I kind of paraphrase that. Then there was a fifth point and that was addressed to those who are in authority, so the masters. Um, And basically it was really simple, it went like this. And masters, all of the above. That's what it says. All of the above applies to you. How cool is that? 
If you're in a, if you're in a position of authority, whether it's in, the, in a church context as a, as a pastor or whether you're in a position of authority leading a group of people in an organisation or whether you're an employer or a business owner that has staff and, and employees under you, your responsibility is to serve those people with honour because they're created in the image of God. It's your responsibility to serve them sincerely with integrity. If you're going to say, say you're going to do something, do it. Nothing worse than when a manager goes, you know what, team? You're so awesome this week, we're going to do this. And it never happens. And you know, it's like, you know how that makes you feel? Well, they don't care, actually, we're worthless. Have integrity. Masters, make sure you serve wholeheartedly. Give 100% to your staff. Give 100% to those people under you. Masters, serve with enthusiasm. Actually, be joyful in your leadership. Yes, it's hard. That's why we're called to pray for our pastors and leaders and those in authority over us. It's hard. I wouldn't want to be in that position in, in a lot of industries. But serve them with joy. Make the workplace pleasant where possible. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's such great advice right here in this letter to the church in Ephesus. And basically what he's saying is this. As masters, it's your responsibility to set the standard. Sounds like a business coaching session, doesn't it? Hello, it's not new. God was saying this centuries ago. Set the standard. It's your responsibility to model the pattern. Again, the context here is within a Christian context. Set the pattern. Be imitators of Christ in your leadership. Andrew, now's a good time. Thanks. It's your responsibility to set the standard, to set the pattern, to model Christ. As it is for those who work under authority, it's our responsibility to imitate Christ as we serve up. And if you're in authority, it's your responsibility to imitate Christ as you serve down. And I was chatting to someone before, what happens if you're in one of those positions where you've got to do both? That's hard. But I think it's doable when it's done... uh, as Paul's talking about, but it's not easy. Is that okay? We're going to wrap this up. I've got a couple more things to say. We're going to wrap this up. Um, how, how do we sum this up? Remember I said earlier that this passage does not sit in isolation to the rest of the letter of Ephesians. And we need to step back and view the whole section as kind of one idea. Everything between um, Ephesians 5.21 and 6.9. It's a bookend. It starts this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, da 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 because there are no favourites with him. They're the bookends. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, because there are no favourites with him. In other words, under God, everyone is equal in the kingdom. So as followers of Jesus, that's how you need to live. That's what you need to model The major theme through this whole section is that of our relationships with others and more specifically how we treat one another. And it's no mistake that Paul gives so much attention to this in his letter to the Ephesian church and and to us as well, of course. Ever since the fall in Eden, humans have set their hearts toward the pursuit of greatness. The allure of power and control and the accumulation of wealth and position. We crave it. 
believing that somehow if we can just attain all of those things that we can have authority over our lives and power over others. But that's not the way it works in God's kingdom. Authority is not something to be gained. Authority is given by God. And when we willingly submit to his rule and his reign in our lives, in every area of our life, in every aspect of our household, (laughs) then we are truly living. As Dave put it this morning, we are truly alive. But more than that, more than that, we will be living, we will be living imitations of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? A living imitation of the Saviour and Redeemer of humanity. Have you ever thought of yourself like that? You ought to. That's a little bit scary even as it comes out of my mouth. We are living imitations of the Saviour and the Redeemer of humanity. Wives and husbands, a model of the authority Christ has with his church. Children and parents, a model of the authority that God has over his family. Slaves and masters, a model of how all people come under the authority as God as one. And when you step back and look at the bigger picture, what you discover is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth. When we allow the power of the gospel to transform every aspect of our lives. God is able to do something in us and through us that is truly amazing. Our gospel-inspired lives have the power to transform the world. Your gospel-inspired life has the power to transform your world, your home, your workplace, where you study, your business. I want to live like that. Do you? I pray that you do. Father, we thank you for your word, for the power it contains to speak into our hearts, to transform us, to give us and bring us life. not really a lot more I think we can say except to say thank you for it thank you for this book of Ephesians and for the, the, the people who have faithfully taught through and we've got some more to go, I'm excited about that but Father I pray that you'd help us not just to read it and hear it and not even just to apply it but to allow the implications of what you're saying to us through this letter to really speak deeply into our lives that we would live gospel inspired lives that see change and healing and restoration and peace brought to our community. And we give you the glory for that because that's a work you do through us, despite us. (laughs) And you love to do it. Help us to love it as well. Amen. Thanks, team.